Today's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1, and then 17, 7 through 14. On the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the home of a leading Pharisee to eat with him. The people there were all watching Jesus very closely. Then Jesus noticed that some of the guests were choosing the best places to sit. So Jesus told this story. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the most important seat. The host may have invited someone else more important than you. And if you're sitting in the most important seat, the host will come to you and say, give this guy your seat. Then you'll begin to move down to the last place. And you will be very embarrassed. So when you're invited, Go sit in a seat that is not important. Then the host will come to you and say, friend, move up here to a more important seat. Then all the other guests will respect you. Everyone who makes himself great will be made humble. But the person who makes himself humble will be made great. Then Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite only your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. At another time, they will invite you to eat with them. Then you will have your reward. Instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot pay you back. They have nothing, but you will be rewarded when the good people rise from death. The word of the Lord. Has anybody reminded you today that you're the beloved of God? Oh, let me be the first then. You're the beloved of God. And there's nothing you can do about it. Other than to say, well, thank you. It's a, it's a gift. We all know that we can't earn that or deserve it. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that and hold on to that for dear life. That we are God's beloved sons, God's beloved daughters. Anthony DeMello used to say, Behold God beholding you and smiling. That may be what we seek when we come to worship on Sunday mornings. Seeking a God who is looking at us and smiling. Not because we've said or done anything, just smiling. And that smile might just transform us might just change the way we look at ourselves and each other. That, that may be the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, but I'm still going to preach a little bit longer. So Jesus today in the scriptures from Luke that Sally read, read the first verse and then jumped to the seventh through the 14th. The first verse is to tell us the context in which Jesus was teaching and preaching he was having a meal on the Sabbath at one of the leaders of the Pharisees' houses. And so it's, it's code for Luke to say, watch out, because Jesus is about to mess things up. He's about to mess with people's preconceived notions. It seems like, I just heard Richard Rohr say this in one of his CDs, you know, 
it's almost like Jesus and the disciples are waiting until the Sabbath to do something. It's like they're not doing anything all week. And then on the Sabbath, they start breaking the rules. They start questioning what the religious establishment has believed. They start stretching the boundaries of what's acceptable in God's eyes and who's in and who's out and everybody's in. And Jesus seems to do that on the Sabbath. I learned this week in some of my reading of commentaries on this lectionary text that the Gospel of Luke, more than any other Gospel, has Jesus celebrating a banquet, celebrating a feast, having a meal with people. More than any of the other Gospels, for Luke, when Jesus is at the table having a meal with people, something significant is happening. In, in that day, to have a meal with someone meant we're okay, we're reconciled, we're forgiven. And so Jesus is having a meal with the, a leader of the Pharisees, and he has two lessons that I want to lift up today. There's always layers and layers of lessons, but I want to lift up two today. It is the call to humility and good table manners and how to create an invitation list, how to make an evite according to Jesus' wisdom. Let's just look at humility briefly. I, did any of you know Reverend George Watt? He was a pastor, Nanyang Boom. He, he was a pastor in this conference for many years. He has um, long since gone to his eternal reward. He was a district superintendent. And um, he was one of those church men that I grew up uh, having conversations with. And, and I was very grateful for that. I remember him once kind of joking with a twinkle in his eye and saying, you know, Jeff, I am the most humble pastor in this conference. <laughs> he, he knew the hypocrisy of the statement. He knew the hypocrisy of the church. And he kept being faithful anyway. Do you remember that song in the 70s? It was something like, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. It's out of tune and bad theology, but... So, so Jesus says to the people who are listening in on this table conversation, when you go to a feast, take the lowest spot. Now, in, in Jesus' day, the, the host would sit at the head of the table, and actually it was reclining at the head of the table. It was almost lying down with, on, on one arm and eating with the other. And people would kind of line up, uh, lying next to each other all the way around these tables, and if you were someone of real importance, you would lie down next to the host, reclining next to the host. And those who were unimportant were at the very far ends of the tables. So Jesus says, the most important part is not where you think it is, not where society tells us it is, not at the head table. It's way at the back where, where the nobodies sit. That's where it's a good place to sit. And if somebody invites you up, fine. Jesus is introducing us to a kind of spirituality that may be a goal that we set in our spiritual lives. You know that the hope for followers of Jesus, the hope that I have for the church is not for more information. God knows we have enough information. 
What we are really longing for is transformation. And that's an interior journey. And transformation happens with great love and with great suffering and with great prayer. I have met some transformed people who are so at home in themselves and in Christ that they really don't care where they sit at the table. They don't care if they're sitting at the important part of the table. They don't care if they're sitting at the unimportant part of the table. They don't care if they are serving those at the table because they're so at home in their identity in Christ. They're so at home in their identity as beloved sons or beloved daughters of God that they don't, they're not interested in the status anymore that comes from whether we're sitting at the important places or not. Now Jesus is speaking to those who may be uh, living out of their false selves, that part of themselves that likes to look good and feel good. Maybe he's talking to people who are proud or arrogant and saying, put yourselves at the lower place. But brothers and sisters, for those who struggle with self-esteem, this may not be the gospel message. For those who are feeling um, deprived of dignity for whatever reason, the gospel message is come up to the head of the table. Come up to the important place. John Wesley in his covenant prayer said, rank me with whom thou wilt. In other words, send me to whomever you wish, whether they be powerful or powerless. That kind of radical trust is part of our Methodist heritage. Cynthia Bourgeau says, in centering prayer, which we practice every Sunday here in a very small way, just for a few moments, really, but when we go deeper into the contemplative practices of sitting in silence, some call it a daily sit, some call it meditation, some call it contemplation, some call it prayer. But to sit in silence is in some ways dealing with this table dynamic. I, I continue to resist sitting in silence. It takes every ounce of discipline to sit in silence intentionally for any amount of time. I set a timer for 15 or 20 minutes because if I didn't have that timer set, I would be antsy, I'd be looking at my phone, I'd be wondering, are we done yet? Certainly I've had enough silence. To sit there, what I'm learning, and Cynthia teaches this, is an affront to our ego. We don't like silence. We don't like empty space because our ego, which likes more and more and more, can't stand it. But you know what? It's healthy for us in the spiritual life to spend time in silence where our ego is diminished. And in the same moments, in the same person, that part of us that has low self-esteem or low self-image in silence is healed by God's grace and raised up. So it is the great equalizer, if you will, to spend time in silence in our own spiritual lives and in the culture in which we live. Steve Garnis Holmes is a United Methodist pastor in New England conference, and he uh, writes some beautiful reflections on this passage today. He says this, don't think poorly of yourself. That's not it. Remember, you are God's beloved. 
in whom God is delighted. And in humility, remember the same of others. God has no hierarchy, no preferences, only love. Be aware of the supremacy you internalize, assuming for yourself a higher place, because you are white or male or not crazy in all the ways we favor and judge. Resolve this day to meet everyone knowing that they are as honored as you or anyone you honor. In your heart and mind, give them the place of honor, for it is only in giving honor that we receive it. Notice the thousand ways we sort and rank the ways we assign goodness and privilege, the hierarchies we imagine into being. Defy them. At God's table, royalty and outcast sit side by side and are indistinguishable. Spend your life at that table and become indistinguishable from God. So Jesus teaches to the teacher of the, to the leader of the Pharisees, whom to invite to the next banquet. He says, when you host a lunch or a dinner, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. I'm going to take a little bit of a long journey to get to, a, to, get to the table, but it's a good story. In 1988 and 89, I was uh, on a Fulbright scholarship in then West Germany. And I was teaching at a, at a gymnasium and studying religion at a university and um, worshiping in a Methodist church, a small Methodist church in a very small town called Budingen. Uh, most Germans have not heard of it. One of my friends, Sieglinde, was one of the historians in the town. And she was attending a congregation that was doing some oral history, telling the stories of what happened to that congregation during the, uh, the Third Reich, when Adolf Hitler was in power from 33 to 45. And the conversation started in this congregation with, well, you know, we, we, um, we didn't really like Hitler, and we didn't... Um, give him the time of day, and we didn't really obey what he was saying. And a voice in the back of the church said, excuse me, I beg to differ. And, 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 and a man named Herr Wagner stood up and he said, when I was a young man and I was working against Hitler, you threw me out of this church. You said I was no longer welcome here because I was a troublemaker. The congregation was silent. And then people began to speak the truth about what happened during that time. It's a fascinating time for Christians of every age to learn what happened to Christianity in that country, in that era. I, I can tell you this, was, this conversation was not in a Methodist church, but the Methodists, they kind of sold their soul to make a deal with Hitler too. They were a sect at the time. They were not respected at the time. And, they, and Hitler said, I will make you a religion if you don't confront me. And they said, all right. So we Methodists are doing our own 
penance, our own struggle when we look at our past. In this particular congregation, they started admitting, you know, we did for a while put the swastika flag on the altar. Can you imagine? For a while, we did pray for Hitler every time we gathered. We were complicit when they threw the Jews out of our town and smashed their windows. And it was a, it was a, a, a painful conversation but it was because of the truth-telling of Herr Wagner. See, Glinda told me about this, and, and I said, is, is he around? She, she said, yes, he's one of your neighbors. So I went down to his house, and I rang the doorbell, and he lived in the upstairs apartment of this old Fachwerk house, 300, 400-year-old house. And, and the speaker on the door, this conversation all took place in German, he said, hello. I said, my name is Jeff Marquet. I'm a friend of Sieglinda Engler. Uh, she told me that you spoke up at the last church meeting about the history of being a part of the underground church in Germany. And I am fascinated with this and I'm studying this. Would you be willing to talk? Silence. You could, I have no idea what he was thinking. The voice said, kommen Sie rein. And he buzzed the lock, opened the door, and I went up. And we spoke for hours, and we, we became friends. But he told me a story about how he was part of the underground church. In German, they call it Die Bekennende Kirche. And it was part of the church of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, part of the church of Martin Niemöller, part of the church of Karl Barth, part of the church that resisted Hitler, that gave up their lives, many of them, to fight against Hitler and to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus when their whole culture, their whole society, their whole country was losing their edge, losing their view, their vision of what is important to build a healthy community, losing their vision of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. He told me that he worked for a baker and he would ride his bike with a huge basket on the front and underneath the bread he would have flyers in German that he would pass out to supporters of the underground church who were part of this quiet movement. The flyers would have information about who is Martin Niemöller, who is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is Karl Barth, what is the Barman Declaration, which is a, a profound piece of theology that says to be a follower of Jesus is to resist any government that is totalitarian. And he took these flyers out of his closet. He showed me this dog-eared piece of paper that said, who is Karl Barth? So the reason I'm telling you this story today is because in some of the commentaries I read on this passage that Sally read this morning, someone wrote very articulately about Karl Barth and his theology. Karl Barth fled Germany taught in Basel, taught in Switzerland, was not a pacifist, but when asked about his loyalty in Switzerland, someone said, do you believe in military protection? And he said, yes, particularly your northern border. <laughs> For those of you who are not sure about what he was referring to there, he was saying, watch out, because Germany is at our northern border. He was arrested numerous times. He wrote extensively about community. And this is why I bring this up today. 
Perhaps it's for me, perhaps it's for us, perhaps it's for someone watching online, I don't know. Karl Barth wrote uh, Church Dogmatics, The Doctrine of Reconciliation, and he was one of the key authors of the Barman Declaration. He wrote four points of what healthy churches look like. Number one, healthy churches create community that reach out to all nations, offer a unity, a oneness among all people that overcomes national, ethnic, and linguistic barriers. By the way, some consider him the greatest theologian in the 20th century. In fact, Pope Pius XII, Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, said Karl Barth is the best theologian he has ever read. So he transcended Protestant and Catholic divides. The second thing he said, healthy church refuses to legitimate dividing community into white congregations, black congregations, brown congregations. Three, healthy churches honor plurality of human cultures. Healthy churches bring together and bless multi-ethnic community. For Karl Barth to be saying this in the 30s is treasonous in Nazi Germany, and in some areas still is. Number four, healthy churches set aside class distinctions between the rich and the poor. Jesus sets a table where everyone is welcome. We're invited to sit at the humble place, trusting that everyone is honored equally. Followers of Jesus, sometimes we're called to go out and seek out this kind of community that Karl Barth and Jesus describes, where the lame, the blind, come together to eat a meal together. But sometimes we don't even have to seek that out. God gives us ample opportunities. I want to invite you to look with these lenses this week and see what opportunities God gives to you and to me to recognize and honor someone who may look differently, who may believe differently, who may speak differently, who may have a different political persuasion, and to look at them with the eyes of Christ, to look at them and honor them for the dignity that they have as a child of God. Let me tell you just some brief examples of how I wasn't seeking this kind of community out, but God gave an opportunity. We were on vacation a few weeks ago, and we pulled, we were, we were going uh, parallel to Route 66 on Route 40. Some of you are just on that. Some of you have been there. It's desolate. We were in need of gas and restrooms. So we pulled off. We found ourselves in the middle of this reservation, went to a gas station. I no sooner got out of the car and a, a gentleman came up behind me and said, excuse me, sir, do you have a dollar that I can have? And I turned around, and I, I looked at him, and I could tell he was from the reservation. He was Native American. And I said, uh, t tell me your name. He said, my name is Chavez Tom. Can I have a dollar? And uh, I said, you know, have you had anything to eat today? He said, no. I said, I saw him where he was coming from. I said, I'll, I'll meet you right back there in a few minutes. I'm going to go get you something to eat. I'm, I'm not going to give you a dollar, but I'll, I'll get you something to eat, something to drink. And so I, I did. 
got some, it was a pre-packaged bologna and cheese sandwich and a bottle of water. Bought it, put it in a bag, went out and sat on a rock with Chavez Tom. I said, tell me your story. He said, uh, I, I don't have a whole lot of story. I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I said, well, that makes us brothers. Uh, I'm a Christian too. He said, I, I know God will get me out of this. I said, I, I believe that. I, I didn't say this then, but I'm reminded of it this week. And I've been, maybe this is for somebody here. I'm feeling a prompt from the spirit, perhaps. James Finley says, God does not exempt us from anything. But God is with us in everything. Do you hear that? That's some good theology. God does not exempt us from anything. But God is with us in everything. For a moment, Chavez, Tom, and I were sitting at the table of the Lord. It was a rock out in the desert. He was eating a bologna and cheese sandwich, but it was communion. And it was the table of Jesus. This week I got a call on the phone. I'm sitting in my office down the hall. I got a call from someone named Mike in Steuben County, New York. He said, my neighbor told me that your church is responsible for building a ramp and a porch on my neighbor's house through the ministry of RISE. He said, I, I haven't been out of my house in six months. I can't walk and um, I, I need your help. Can you build a ramp and a, and a porch? I said, Mike, we would, I, I can't make any promises. I can get your name and your contact information to our board and they have a process, an application process and our work teams, we're not sending work teams up anymore this summer. He said, oh, I know, I'm talking about next summer. Mike sits at the table of the Lord with us. A woman from Patterson called me this week. Can't pay my PSE&G bill. I used to come to your church when Dale Forsman was the pastor. And I used to bring someone who couldn't walk. And I would be there every Sunday. And Dale used to help me out. So thanks to some of your generosity that funds the, the pastor's discretionary fund, we're going to help her out with her PSE&G bill this, this month. She sits at the table of the Lord. She's part of the community that Jesus creates in our midst. A few months ago, a homeless man walked in the back door of our church, and some of our people met him there, could tell he was homeless, and, and had the, the presence of mind to say, do you need any clothes? We just had a sweater drive. And, and there's a pile of sweaters down there in the stairwell. He said, yes, I do. He put on a sweater. You, you, you were there. Sally, you were part of this. Alex, I think you were part of this. Jerry, I think, was a part of it. Maybe some of you were. They had conversation and community with this gentleman. Somebody came up to get me and said, Jeff, is there anything that we can do for him? I came down. I asked him, have you had anything to eat today? And he said, no. I said, come on, let's go across the street. This is about 9 o'clock at night. Let's go across to Cafe Villa. So he and I were eating some pizza there. Alex, behind the counter, was aware of what was going on. It was about closing time. He packaged up all sorts of food, all sorts of bottles of water, put them in a bag, came over and gave them to my friend and said, here, this is on the house. Generosity begets generosity. When people see kindness, compassion, 
they want to be a part of it. This is part of how the Spirit works in our midst. That gentleman sits at the table of the Lord with us. For those of you who commute into New York City, you will have an opportunity to see the community that God creates. It's on the trains. Have any of you gotten on the train or off the train here in Chatham? A few weeks ago, I saw this happening. People getting off the train coming from West Orange, coming from Newark, are very often Caribbean, African, from West Africa. They're getting off in Chatham to work here for the day. On the other side of the tracks, there are Latino and Latina men and women getting off the tracks coming from Dover, stopping in Chatham where they can work or perhaps get a job mowing a lawn or working a day labor job. And in Chatham where predominantly white folks are getting on and off of the train commuting into New York City, do you see God creating community right there with no hierarchy, no one more valuable than another, all children of God. Perhaps those who are commuters or taking a trip into the city might look with the eyes of Christ to see the human dignity of all people. I know it's not the fourth Sunday of the month. I mean, I know it's not the first Sunday of the month when we have communion. It's the fourth Sunday. But I felt led to prepare the table of the Lord today because I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I want to eat at a table where all are welcome. I want to eat at a table where Jesus presides. The Jesus who calls all people together, insiders and outsiders, rich and poor, acceptable and unacceptable. However people are deemed in our society, they're all welcome at this table. I hope that we can take in this food in such a way that we might be able to recognize that this table doesn't stop here in Rada Hall. It extends out to every table. The hope is that we take in Christ so that we become Christ.